0: This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Whether you want to place a trade on Twitter or get market news from your smart speaker, TD Ameritrade has everything you need to invest on your favorite platforms and devices. See what's new at tdameritrade.com. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, September 20th, and we're discussing oil field servicers. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and I'm joined by full.com contributor Jason Hall via Skype. How's it going, Jason?
1: I'm, I'm trying to figure out how it's Thursday. I'm pretty sure yesterday was Monday. This week is flying by.
0: Yeah, tell me about it. I mean, yesterday at Full HQ, we had a little bit of a power snafu, you know, had work from home yesterday that really kind of threw off the whole week. And, you know, tomorrow is Friday, so I guess we'll get into the weekend, but it's it's been a very interesting week uh, over here in Alexandria.
1: Yeah, that's it's uh, I can know the whole, you know, eastern seaboard, you know, from you guys and on down south has been has been tough. So, you know, I think it's it's. I think I can speak for you and everybody else at Full HQ to say that, you know, our thoughts are definitely with the people that have been affected by the hurricane.
0: Yes, completely. All of our listeners that might have been affected by the hurricane. You know, we're with you. Anything we can do to help out, um, let us know. All right, Jason, let's go ahead and dive into, um, into into the topic we're talking about today, which is oil field servicers. And you know, I really like this topic because you know, we're moving right down the supply chain from our episode last week on the frac sand industry. So so you know, the frac sand providers will, they'll, they'll take that frac sand and they'll provide it to servicers who who in turn use that sand to drill and complete wells for their EMP uh, customers. You know, one of our one of our listeners actually sent us a picture, you know, of of oil field field servicers integrating uh, this frac sand process. Um, at an oil field in Cheyenne, Wyoming, you can check that out on our Twitter account. It's at MF Industry Focus. And remember, if you have any questions, comments, or pictures, please uh, please share those with us. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter again at MF Industry Focus, or you can email us at industryfocus at fool Okay, Jason. So we're, we're talking about oil field servicers. So first off the bat, you know what does it mean to be an oil field servicer? What are these uh, services these companies provide, and who are their customers?
1: So. I guess to kind of preface the – kind of set the stage with, with the way the, most of the oil and gas industry works is a tremendous amount of the actual, you know, boots on the ground. They call it picks and shovels kind of work is contracted out to third parties that actually do the work. So whether you're talking about uh, things like seismic testing, so they're mapping out these, these reserves to really figure out where the oil and the gas is. Uh, figure out how they're going to, you know, look at the core testing. So they drill these cores and then they helps give them an idea of further information about where everything's located. Uh, the actual drilling itself. Uh, you know, we talked about the sand providers, uh, sand suppliers last week. Um, uh, the the pipeline companies that, that you connect in. Uh, I mean, these are all third parties that, that the actual oil and gas producers. Generally, they contract a third party to do it. So. Um, these companies can be incredibly profitable when demand is growing, uh, because prices, you know, basic supply and demand prices tend to go up for their services when there's higher demand. Uh, but they also are the ones that can get absolutely beaten down, uh, when oil demand falls, prices fall, uh, because they're the ones that get squeezed. Um, you know, as demand falls, they have to cut prices. Uh, producers know that they can go to them to, 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 uh, renegotiate contracts uh, when when demand is low. Um, so they, they they basically do everything <laughs> when it comes to actually getting the oil and gas out of the ground. You know they they these these are the people that really do it. They're really the ones that, that to get the oil and gas out of the ground.
0: Right, Jason, and, and when you you mentioned you know a second ago that. You know they're very sensitive to supply demand. You know, in the oil market, and you know as as we discussed last week, and I'm sure we'll just keep discuss discussing going forward, is that you know there was a huge collapse of oil prices. You know in 2014 through uh, you know into this year when they started ticking back up, um, and so as a result of that, you know you saw a lot of cutback from these ENP these customers for the uh, oil services companies, and so that's led as you mentioned to a huge oversupply. Uh, of these oil services, servicers equipment that has led to prices go down. Um, you know, as there's been a lot of, of this equipment that's had to have been idled, or, or there hasn't been a, a demand from from their customers to you know keep drilling. Uh, that's really kind of hurt these companies. But we're we're starting to see some signs that there might be a little bit of a turnaround in the industry. So uh, over the past year, the, the total number of oil and gas rigs in the United States has averaged about 1,017. So to put that in context. Um, that's putting the total count of rigs in 2018 on track to be uh, the highest since it was in 2014 which averaged 1862 rigs and so uh, we're up 19 percent the rig count is up 19 percent so far in the United States this year and it's up another seven percent in the last quarter so we're really starting to see um, some demand coming back to put more rigs in the ground uh, we're also seeing a rise in some of these large um, infrastructure projects uh, so' it, Firms are on track to approve about three hundred billion dollars in spending um, on mega uh, project ventures um, in uh, in 2019 and 2020, and that's more than the entire uh, spending that we saw from 2015 to 2017. And that's across across the world. It's it's liquefied natural gas in, in Mozambique. It's you know the oil in Guyana. We're we're talking about the Exxon is developing. You know, all of this is is taking place all over the world, and it's it's the biggest. You know, it's really we're starting to see a comeback um, from where we're at in 2014. I think another thing that's significant, um, and I'll ask you to talk about this, Jason, is you know over this time where we've seen you know a cutback uh, in, in demand for oil field servicing, and and really these EMP players have cut back their expenditures. They may not have been completing these wells, but they have been hiring these oil field servicers. To drill new wells that may not be uncompleted, uh, that may not be completed. So these are drilled but uncompleted wells, and that's really been trending up. I mean, currently we're seeing you know almost 4,000 drilled but uncompleted wells in the Permian. Can you talk about the, the significance of these? You know, for when that supply dynamic, uh, supply demand dynamic starts to shift, what are these drilled but uncompleted wells really going to mean for these oil field servicers?
1: Yeah, we've actually. I mean, this is something that's 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 been. Uh, kind of building for really a couple of years, going back to during the the, the downturn. Um, you know, as oil prices were falling towards the 20s, um, one of the things that was happening is that the rigs, you know, rigs were falling offline. You know, the rig count in you know North America was dropping and dropping and dropping. But there was still this backlog of drilled, uncompleted wells that had been fracked that were they were ready to go. You just basically had to had to start you know throwing pump jacks on and start pulling oil and gas out of them, and you know, as we've seen since oil prices have creaked back up over the past you know year and a half, um, rig counts have, have gone back up steadily, um, and more and more uh, drilled uncompleted wells have come online. But the count of, of drilled uncompleted um, wells has continued to it's continued to grow, and the, I think the biggest part of it, if you look at you know the Permian, we hear so much about that. We talked about it last week, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it you know constantly. Uh, pretty regularly for the next few years is, you know, it's infrastructure. That's, that's the issue. I mean, there's no takeoff capacity to complete these wells and connect them to the pipeline grid and start getting the oil out of them and sending it somewhere. So, uh, you know, I think we're going to, you know, the next year, 18 months, you know, maybe two years as more and more of this, this infrastructure comes online, you know, we're going to hear more and more about um, these drilled um, uncompleted Um, Wells that need to be connected, Um, and I think the the kind of the bigger picture of that is when when you think about some of the the oilfield service uh, companies is really over the next year, especially if you think about shale, you think about North America, you know there could be some kind of a lull, um, depending on how things play out, uh, simply because there are so many wells that are ready to start producing, but there's no, there's it's going to take time to get the capacity to to, to get the, the oil out of those wells
0: right exactly so so we're seeing you know maybe a little bit of an inflection point in demand um, for oil field servicing maybe seeing a little bit of this latent demand kind of backed up with these drilled but uncompleted wells you know as that takeaway capacity comes on in the Permian they're really going to be in a position to really uh ramp up uh, the services they're providing I, I will want to I do want to point out one other issue that you know, as this ramp up occurs, uh, may affect these oil field servicers. Is you know during that um, uh, the the uh, pullback in the oil market 2014 uh, through the beginning of this year, uh, there was a significant amount of layoffs across the industry that's really shrunk uh, the workforce. Uh, particularly, this is affecting the oil field servicers. So, uh, 195,000 employees in the oil field services industry were laid off between 2014 and February of 2017 uh, so if that sounds like a lot it is that's about 44 percent of the total layoffs across the energy industry so there's been a significant uh, pullback in the in the headcount on these oil field servicers. which you know going forward as they try to ramp up uh, it's not only going to be that they need demand from their suppliers but they need to have the headcount to really make this uh, make this take place so as we start ramping up that's another thing to look out for is, you know, is there going to be enough labor online uh, to really ramp these as quickly as we'd like to see? And just for some context about the amount of labor that you might need uh, to run one of these operations, I mean, one frac fleet, uh, you know, in the Permian or elsewhere, you know, other other uh, shale plays across the United States, typically has about forty pieces of large heavy-duty equipment that needs to be, uh, or can have, you know, as many as forty pieces of large heavy-duty equipment that have to be operated to, to just run the the, the the well. And each one of those needs a driver. You need a lot of labor to kind of set up and take down these locations. So, you know, this is something that could be an issue for the, these servicers even as demand comes online. So it's a thing to uh, to um, keep in mind as we're looking at these companies. I mean, anything else that, you know, uh, investors should look out for just from an industry perspective uh, in the oil field servicers, you know, before we go into these individual companies we're going to talk about in the second half of the show.
1: Yeah, I think I think the, the labor shortage is really important. Um, you know, we're fortunate enough to have some some uh, industry workers uh, who are also listeners. And uh, a few, we've had a few that have reached out to us um, and, and kind of shared their 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 individual perspective. And one of the things that you, you mentioned, uh, drivers uh, looking at a bigger in a bigger picture, there's been a, a driver shortage uh, in in the U.S. Uh, for for years, and it's been building and building and building. And it's something that a lot of shipping and trucking companies talk about every quarter on their quarter on their earnings calls is the struggles that they have finding enough qualified drivers. And you know, I think it's this is it's having a bigger impact on the oil and gas industry today than it has in the past because. The you know with with uh, you know with hydraulic fracking and 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 the changes in, in shale plays that have gotten a little more technical, um, being able to get equipment there, so delivering sand, you know as we talked about uh, last week, uh, you know that's something that's that's only been around for you know the, over the past you know decade or so. So those are things that are, are certainly going to, going to affect it. I think I think those are things that are they they could be good for. Um, some of the service uh, these service companies, because the, the companies that have the, the best employees will probably be able to charge a bit of a premium um, when, when, you know, push comes to shove and you're a producer and, you know, you need to bring uh, you know, production online, you know, you, you may have to pay a premium to, to get access to it. So I think the, the big takeaway is because we are approaching a bit of an inflection point uh, there's some uncertainty in the near term about what's going to happen with demand. Um, I think the key is, you know, you can't just throw money at, at the sector and think you're going to do well. I think you have to be a, a little more choosy in this sector to make sure that you you, you, you invest in the, in the companies that have the best prospects. And scale is important. Um, position in the marketplace is really important. And I think that's one of the reasons that uh, we decided to talk about uh, some of the big suppliers, some of the big oilfield service companies today.
0: Exactly, Jason. And On the second half of the show, we're going to talk about Halliburton and we're going to talk about Schlumberger, who are two of the largest oilfield services operators in the world. Um, but first, let's, let's have a message from TD Ameritrade. This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. You're always on the cutting edge of technology, and TD Ameritrade prides itself on being ahead of the curve, too. Their latest innovations put their resources and services on the popular platforms you carry and use every day. Now all you have to do is enable the TD Ameritrade skill for Amazon Alexa, or message them on Facebook to stay on top of the markets. Learn more about their commitment to innovation at tdameritrade.com/innovation. Okay, Jason. So I think we, in the first half of the show, we got a decent picture of the state of the oil services industry. So now let's dive into a couple. You know, we mentioned we're going to talk about Halliburton and we're going to talk about Schlumberger, and these, these two companies, as I mentioned, are, are two of the largest oil field services operators in the world. Um, but over the past year or so they've really trailed uh, the market so you know oil's been up about 41 percent over that past time uh, the oil services sector itself is up about four percent but we're looking at Halliburton you know down eight and a half percent or so Slumberger down 9 point3 percent you know what do you think about these businesses how their performance has gone over the past year and why are they kind of trailing uh, their their you know sector average
1: let's go back a little bit farther than before we talk about just the past year, if you look at the, the, these companies' performance or their financial performance, you look at gross margins, look at operating margins, uh, both are still producing operating margins that are substantially lower today than they were when oil prices were higher, which you know, makes sense because you know, oil prices are an indicator of demand, uh, rolls back to their services, what we were talking about before, it's you know, how much of a premium can they charge. So, you know, really since the beginning of the year, you know, we've started to see some improvement in their margins, but at the end of the day, because these are really big companies that do a lot of things, especially uh, Schlumberger, which is a little more geographically diverse and evolved a little bit more offshore. A lot of the things that they do are areas that are still been relatively underinvested in, you know, there hasn't been substantial investments in some of the, some of the other subsectors. And you know, investors just haven't really seen any big catalyst that, that makes these necessarily look like they're ready for for a big run in the short term. I think, and, and that's I, mean, I think that's what, kind of why they've, they've 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 trailed the greater industry.
0: Yeah, it makes sense, Jason. And we can kind of pull the thread on that. Let, let's go ahead and, and swing into uh, talking a little bit about Halliburton. Uh, you know, Halliburton's a thirty-four billion dollar market cap company, one of the largest operators uh, in the oilfield services sector. Um, what's significant about Halliburton is they're the largest player in uh, United States shale fracturing. Uh, about 62% of their revenue comes from uh, North America. They have the biggest market share in fracking. And they're very substantially located, as we've mentioned when we speak about fracking, in the Permian. Um, can you talk a little bit about that positioning, you know, whether it's an advantage to Halliburton, disadvantage? You know, I know we talked last week about those takeaway constraints in the Permian. How do you mm-hmm. think they really situate uh, in the the servicers market based on that major concentration in U.S. fracking?
1: You know, I think it's it's one of those things that that can be good or bad, right? If you think of you know, the, the, there's definitely you know, I think over the long term, there's it's probably going to be a strength for the company. Uh, they're they're incredibly good at fracking. Um, they're one of the companies that has led the significant reduction in cost. And improve the turnaround time for for fracked oil. I mean, the shale. They've, you know, we're talking. You go back a few years ago, and it would take you know a couple months and millions and millions of dollars to get these wells online. And now we're talking about you know from you know spud to production and I don't know <laughs> a week in some cases and you know half or less than half as much as it costs five or six years ago to to bring one of these wells online. Uh, and and that's, the, their reputation is is phenomenal. Because of that. So I think because of the Permian, you think about the Powder River Basin, which is uh, another big shale play that's that's starting to, to, to get a lot of attention. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be a strength. I think the key is, you know, how much how much demand are we going to see over the next year? Something I talked about last week in terms of is, is the Permian going to is there going to be a slowdown in, in activity in the Permian because of the, the pipeline constraints Or not, and I think that's kind of what's going to affect the 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 near term um, prospects for uh, um, for Halliburton.
0: Right, and and that's that's the thing that Halliburton really doesn't control. I mean, that's dependent on those other those other uh, pipeline uh, companies to really bring that online. But as that as that takes place, you know, Halliburton is probably of the servicers going to be best positioned um, to take advantage of that ramp up in shale. And you know, as you mentioned. you know, we we've seen a little bit of constraints uh, in in the in the, these shale providers that have really been surprising to uh, to Halliburton. They mentioned on their on their second quarter earnings call that you know they've been they had expected a little bit of a downturn um, in activity you know in the recent months, but it's been more than they expected. And it, you know mm-hmm. some of that's going to be the Permian constraints. Some of that's going to be different suppliers, different uh, uh, fracking operators in different parts of the country. You know, maybe hitting. You know their budget limitations for the year; those sorts of things. Um, that's been something that, that it's been uh, affecting Halliburton, and it has been a little bit of a surprise uh, appears to to their management. Another thing you yeah. mentioned. too, uh, go ahead, sorry.
1: I was I was just going to say uh, Jeff Miller, the their CEO, also um, talked a little bit about inflation uh, in the second quarter earnings call. Uh, you know the fact that they're starting to see increased maintenance expenses. Uh, Trucking, here it goes that again. Trucking costs are going up, so they're starting to to feel some of those uh, some of those costs are going up, um, and they they can't necessarily pass all of those costs along to their to their customers. So so there's some challenges there. Uh, one of the things that he talked about, and actually something that that our one of our listeners that wrote in that walks worked in the industry talked about, is how they're seeing more use of containerized sand uh, and some of the logistic services that the uh, sand providers are, are are offering to help. You know, to kind of help offset some of that inflation. So there are things that they're doing to kind of help offset some of those cost overruns. But you're spot on. It's, it's. it's I think it's happening faster than they expected.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Um, and and I do want to mention too. I mean, uh, Halliburton presented at a Barclays Oil Conference earlier this month. They they said they do expect. You know, over the long term that they, they will reach uh, returns that were as high as they were back in the 2014 cycle but just important for investors to remember with these constraints in the Permian with these other uh, factors affecting shell players in the United States that's going to be a major uh, contributor to Halliburton's performance going forward so just be watching it over the next 18 to 20 months see how this uh, takeaway capacity plays out and you know if it starts to come online in a significant way I mean Halliburton's going to be, be in a position. Uh, To take advantage of it, Um, let's go ahead and swing into Slumberger. It's got $84 billion market cap. So, from a market cap perspective, it's about twice as big as Halliburton. You mentioned more geographically diverse. Why don't you give us a little bit of a rundown? Where does Slumberger operate? What are their core competencies? Uh, A little bit about the company from that perspective.
1: Yeah, so. First of all, it's it's definitely a bigger company. It's it's also more diverse in its services as well. It uh, it you know it, so you think about uh, from a geographic perspective, you know uh, less than 40% of its revenue comes from North America, uh, Slumberjays that is, whereas Halliburton gets you know well over half of its of its revenue comes from North America. Um, Slumberjays started to see some, some growth in its offshore work. Uh, you know this is this is um, uh, you know a company that uh, has has invested and expanding its equipment, uh, side of its business as well. It, it acquired Cameron international, you know, probably a couple of years ago. Now, uh, Cameron, uh, a lot of what Cameron does is uh, a subsea and under, you know, as an offshore, you know, underwater equipment. Um, so that's, that's kind of where Slumberjay has been investing and in kind of building out its business while, um, or, um, while you know, Halliburton is, is is really kind of gone, I don't want to say all in on shale, uh, but is certainly you know hedging its bets more towards towards the shale side. So, you know, I think I think that's one of the things that's really makes uh, slum J really interesting right now is because we've seen far less investment in offshore. We've uh, seen far less investment. In some of the tr- more traditional, uh, you think about a lot of the OPEC stuff. There just hasn't been a ton of investment in developing those resources over the past few years. And I think we're getting to a point where, because of the decline of the output from 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 those types of of, of assets uh, and, and the need to invest, I just don't think shale can necessarily replace all of that lost uh, capacity. Um, I think that Schlumberger is in a really interesting position uh, over the next few years, where we're already starting to see some of those investment dollars flowing back.
0: Right. And that, that's, again, something we mentioned in the first half of the show. Um, another thing I just want to call out too you mentioned we're, we're seeing some comeback in, in the offshore uh, investment and, and that's really kind of a canary in a coal mine you know for uh, the energy markets in general offshore tends to be the last thing to pop back. Um, so if we're really seeing some some ramp up over there that that's really a, a bullish sign uh, for the oil market. I do want to call out a little bit that you know while while uh, Slumberger is not primarily focused in the Permian, they have or in, or in the North American shale, Brought more uh, broadly, um, Schlumberger still is making some significant investments there. So, yeah. they're up forty three percent year over year in their North American production. Um, earlier this year, beginning of this year, uh, they purchased Weatherford Internationals uh, pressure pumping and pump down equipment uh, for four hundred and thirty million dollars in cash. That's it's known as their their one stem service. It had originally been planned to be a joint venture with Weatherford to kind of help compete. Uh, with Halliburton in the Permian, you were going to bring together, you know, Weatherford's pressure pumping expertise uh, with some of Schlumberger's services, manufacturing capacity, uh, supply chain, excuse me, uh, with Schlumberger's uh, services, and it ended up turning out that Weatherford, you know, s- decided to sell that. Uh, To Schlumberger, so now Schlumberger is really running a a vertically integrated uh, Mm -hmm. service with their one-stem offering. They're promising customers, you know, a 10% savings on barrel of oil equipment through this service. I mean, another thing to call out, and this again ties back to what we talked about last year, they're even investing in some sand mines to really vertically integrate uh, their offering, you know, in the shale patch. So, you know, they're really they've got their hands in the oil market all over the place, you know, from North American shale to offshore to North Africa they're really you know benefiting anywhere the oil market pops back Schlumberger is going to have a piece of that action
1: well it's it's scale is a, it's I think it's a real competitive advantage and you, and you talk about with the weatherford deal that you know it's something that originally started out as a joint venture and if you go back to the um, to the Cameron acquisition there was kind of a similar thing there was a one subsea which was a joint venture a 50/50 joint venture that Schlumberger had with Cameron and um so acquiring Cameron as the manufacturer and rolling that joint venture, where SlumberJ was more of the or service provider, um, again creating that vertical integration that you're talking about. Um, yeah, it's it's SlumberJ is just really strong. They're they're it's just really strong.
0: Yeah, one other thing I do want to call out too, and the management mentioned this in their their recent earnings call is, you know, as things start coming online. Uh, slumberj is expected to reach full capacity for all their fleets uh, by Q4 of this year, and that's just by, you know, following through on their existing contracts. Um, so what that means is, once all their once all their uh, capacity is under contract, there is no supply left, uh, left in the market uh, for their customers. So that means the market's going to tighten a little bit. That's going to give slumberj and other operators in in the uh, in the oil services industry, the opportunity to ratchet up their prices as the demand tightens. And they and they said this explicitly on the earnings call that they're in negotiations with customers where they can those customers can secure, you know, the Slumberger's capacity, but they're gonna have to give Slumberger some more favorable terms. So we're really starting to see the market tighten, prices start to come up, and, and Slumberger is one of those, one of those players that's really set up to benefit from that very, very soon.
1: Because it controls so, so much of the market and so many of these things in so many geographies and in so many different parts of the value chain. It's just really well positioned.
0: Exactly. So, you know, we, we've talked about these two companies, we've talked about how they're positioned geographically. Um, you know, if you look at Halliburton relative to Sumberger, I mean, on an EV to EBITDA multiple, Halliburton's trading at about a 30% discount. You know, just from your perspective, Jason, if you had to pick one of these companies today, to invest in, you know, which one would it be, and why?
1: Yeah, I, I, I think it would be Schlumberger, even though that it's, it's technically a more expensive stock. Um, I, I, like the fact that I think that in terms of where it is right now, um, I think it's exposed to where there's probably going to be more investment growth. Think about the offshore uh, investment. I think that's great, but I think it's also started to position itself. Uh, in in shale so that it can benefit from some of the things that are happening on shore um, I think there's also uh, and it, you're kind of paying for it in the in the premium multiple that's already there but I think there's also a little bit better downside uh, protection because you know you talk about if you look at its its uh, existing backlog uh, and and how much of its its capacity is already under contract um, I mean there's some value to that you know if prices fall if if you know, if the if the market goes into a little, oil market goes into a little bit of a downturn, uh, its business is a little more protected. Its cash flows are already kind of locked in for the for the near term. So, I mean, there's some benefits to that. I really I really think so. But I like that it's a more diverse business. I like that it's become more vertically integrated. Uh, whereas, I'm I'm just not convinced that Halliburton's uh, heavier exposure just to shale is going to be you know uh, a you know a you know a, a dead cinch. Way to 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 get the best returns. I just like the diversity.
0: Yeah, well, it's just like we tell investors, you know, with their own personal portfolios, you know, you're better prepared for uncertainty when you have a diverse portfolio. And when it comes to uh, Schlumberger's geographical locations where they operate, their portfolio of offerings is much more geographically diverse than Halliburton. So, you know, Halliburton, if shale really explodes. They may be in a position to make outsized returns, but if shale doesn't quite live up uh, to what you know Halliburton is expecting, and maybe you know what the market is expecting, Halliburton is going to suffer in a disproportionate way that Slumberger really is not going to because of their geographic diversity. Um,
1: I I have to admit too, I'm I'm also uh, really bullish on on offshore uh, from here going forward. Um, so there's a, there's a little built in bias right there. Um, you know, maybe one of these days we can we can talk about the, some of the offshore the drilling contractors uh, on one of these shows. But I just I just think if you look at where we are now, the investment in offshore, you know, we're on track this year to to see about 50% more dollars invested in offshore than we did a year ago. Uh, that's pretty substantial, um, and we're still below 2014 levels by far. So there's a lot of room to run in uh, in offshore. I, I just I think that that's one of the things I like for uh, for sunshine.
0: Exactly, Jason. I think I think that, that's a really good thesis. It really makes a lot of sense. I mean, last thing going away, you know, for listeners, if they're thinking about getting involved, you know, in, in the oil field services industry, you know, just broadly, and we may have touched on some of these points, but just to really draw them out for investors, you know, what are the things they should be watching if you're already in the space, you know, what should you be watching, you know, that will point out your thesis may be changing? What are the important, you know, two or three things investors should really pay attention to if they're interested in this space?
1: So I think the first thing you have to have to look at with any individual companies, especially if it's a specialist company that does only one or two things or only works in a specific geography, you really want to look closely at the balance sheet. You know, the companies that are more leveraged are the ones that are going to get just absolutely beaten down. Uh, You have to protect on the downside in this space. So you don't want companies that have taken on too much risk with a ton of debt. Uh, don't necessarily generate the cash flows that are that are going to be secure when there's a turndown. Uh, So that's, you know, I think that's one place that you have to start with any of these companies is understanding uh, their balance sheet. Um, I think you also need to spend some time if you are looking at any of the smaller guys that are doing certain things in certain areas, really understand that play, you know, understand who who they're competing with, who are their potential customers, um, you know, just kind of Piecing together those little those little pieces of the relationships. Um, if, if you're not comfortable or, or willing to put in the time to really get into the 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 the, the weeds, so to speak, on those sorts of things, I think you really just need to look at some of the bigger companies that have the geographical diversity that offer multiple services, and then just look for for good value uh, opportunities. You know, look for you know opportunities to invest it at uh, at better prices over time. And instead of trying to sell at the top, look at invest when, when the prices are down, and then play them out over the long term. And I think that's how you can do well.
0: Exactly. And that probably ties into your your, uh, your thesis there on the offshore players. Well, Jason, thanks for coming on again. Looking forward to having you on in the future. You know, Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about those offshore players a little bit more in detail. Sounds great! Alright. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Jason Hall, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and full on!